Thank you, Brian. Good to have Stephanie here with us today. So much fun. And the worship was great. Lord, just catch us up in your glory today. Lord, we want to be part of your story with what you're doing in our lives, God. So when Brian talked to me about, um, hold this closer to here. Is that better? Sweet. Thanks. So when Brian talked to me about speaking, he forgot that I have done most of my preaching in Africa. We've preached for hours there. <laughs> I had to pare this down a little bit here. So we are in kind of a transition point in the Gospel of John. The first 12 chapters were the public ministry of Jesus, the seven public miracles that he had, documenting his deity and the work of the Holy Spirit, which John calls Logos, or the Word. And this is the principle of divine reason and creative order. Jesus spoke the universe into being and holds it together. See Colossians chapter 1. Now, beginning in chapter 13 through the end of the book of John, we enter into the Passion, his personal ministry and explanation of his incarnation. So we have a choice here. Here we are in chapter 13 of John. Do we enter into his passion or do we stay behind? So I actually chose this chapter, but I have some trepidation about this story of the Last Supper. It hits a little close to home for me. So as I was praying about this sermon, the Lord said, Jackson, quit being such a chicken. You need to man up, dude. I have something for you in this. Get personal with me. I am with you. So Jenny said to me, as we were talking about the sermon this week, she said, what is this title? You know, um, duplicity, presumption, pride, finding gospel truth. Um, is it too late to change your sermon title? You know, when you, when you set up a message, you, you kind of know what you want to say, but you're not sure whether you're going to kind of pull it off. So pray for me as we our time together today. So I have four sons and four daughters, and there's 22 of us in our family as far as I know so far, unless there's a surprise somewhere. And our youngest daughter is Hannah, and when she got married, my brother-in-law, Eddie Hackett, came up to me and he said, Jackson, you just have one daughter. He has three. You just have one daughter. Don't miss the moment. Enter into the intimacy of that moment as you walk her down the aisle and during that service. Don't miss it. So on Sundays, our family meets, and it's a little bit of chaos, and Dishes pile up, and I start 
washing the dishes, and Jenny looks at me, and she says, Jackson, sit down with the family, let the dishes go. Well, I'm out in front with all the grandkids playing with them, and I see, oh, we're doing kickball or football or soccer, and, and I see some weeds, and I start pulling weeds, and my grandkids say to me, stop pulling weeds, Jojo. Pops, stop pulling weeds and come play with us. Is that true? Yes, it is true. The good news is that despite our upbringing and shortcomings, Jesus can redeem us like Peter, but we can choose to ignore deity like Judas. So when we talk about why is it that John wrote his book, which was the last book written, last gospel story of Jesus written, why did he write it this way? I'm trying to keep this up closer, sorry. Why does he write it this way? So the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're focused mostly about the coming of the kingdom. They're about, you know, what's happening with the Messiah. They're apocalyptic, soon and very soon. They're like, picture this, they're like the hustle and bustle of a marketplace or the crossroads of commerce. They're on the move. But John's gospel is different. It's like turning out of the city into a quiet chapel and we are called, where we are called to meditate on the deep things of the eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh. The Lord sets us up. This week, while I was in my office, I was cleaning, and I was going through some papers that I hadn't gone through in a few years, and I found a poem by, that a patient had given me. So funny. And the poem ends in, not what I do believe, but whom. Not what, but whom, which is what Brian was talking about. So John wants us to meditate on the cosmic and mystical idea of the God-man. Two, na two, two natures in the one person, Jesus, giving us the power to overcome the issues we face as human beings. This is not random. Why do we love superhero movies? Why do we get into the story of the prince that rescues the fair maiden? Why is that? It's because God has put that deep in our hearts. That's the way the Creator made us to be interested in those things. We want to be overcomers, and sometimes we need to be rescued or we want to be rescued. Those desires were placed in us by God. You can't avoid those things deep in your heart by the Creator. Let's begin reading Scripture. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, and the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from, the, from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured, a wa poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. 
Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered him and said, what I am doing you do not understand, but you will know after this. You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if, you, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed only, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So Judas wants the appearance of being a righteous disciple. But we see his true heart in the last chapter when he criticizes Mary from the advantage of being a man in this paternalistic society. Jesus had to step in and level the playing field. Was this the event that turned Judas's pride and began turning his heart to evil? Well, this is duplicity. Judas is being double-minded or deceitful, playing the role of being a disciple, but not really being there, not really knowing the heart of Jesus Christ or seeking the heart of Jesus. We can be like that sometimes. There are times when we can get hurt or upset when Jesus uses others to call out our prideful attitudes. How can I prevent a hardness of heart in respect to Jesus? that can make me double-minded like we see in Judas. Because that's the thing that concerns me, is that I see those kind of tendencies in myself and worries in myself. How do I see God's mercy in the midst of my iniquity? How do I see his grace in the midst of my pride? So I recently had a patient that I was seeing, and he stole some sticky pads out of the drawer in my office. And in the middle of the encounter, he said, you know, I have a confession to make. I stole these sticky pads out of your drawer. And um, he was looking at me sheepishly. And I said, well, you took them. Why did you confess to the crime? He said, well, you've always taken such good care of me, and I felt guilty. Here, take them back. The Lord takes care of us, but we still do bad things, and we feel guilty. The good news is that God has a remedy for us. But this involves, just like the song we sang, seeing yourself in God's story, being part of the glory of God. It's about how do I see myself here? Am I part of this story, this grand story that involves God. Remember, history is really his story. It's his story, and we become a part of that. So when I was 13, I only wanted used books for Christmas. Dad may remember that. So I got a box full of used books for Christmas, and I hold up in my room for weeks, reading and reading cooped up there. My imagination went wild. In a good story, you can see yourself or you can imagine yourself in that story. Picture Jesus and the disciples after evening prayers, reclining before the meal. This was a precious time 
of conversing and connecting over the nighttime meal before Passover, an intimate time, as Eddie Hackett had talked about. Meals and food bring remembrance of special times, personal times. The disciples likely had lots of memories of Passovers with their families. They knew the story of the first Passover. So I'm not going to read all of Exodus 12 about the Passover, but I want to read a key verse, which is, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So this is the story of good versus evil. It's the story of the Lord defeating all the gods of Egypt. The people were enslaved, but God had a plan to free the people of Israel. When Adam chose to defy God and eat the apple in the garden, sin entered into the world. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, As sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin spread to all men and women, for by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Jesus is the second Adam, Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He was sacrificed that we may gain freedom in our lives. Healing from evil done to us by others and healing from evil we have done to others. This is the story of overcoming the gods of Egypt in our lives. We all have these gods or idols in our lives. As I've said, although this story should be sweet, when I read the story of the Last Supper, it gives me pause in my life. I worry that I will be like Judas Iscariot. He saw the miracles of God right before his eyes, but still betrayed Jesus. Could I do that? Scripture says that he was the holder of the money box and not honest. Iscariot is not a family name. It means locksmith or thief. And we learn that he pilfered from the money box. Why is this story about Judas hard for me? When I was a kid, before we had the Internet, we all used to get something called a newspaper. I think my dad still gets one. When I was nine, my best friend Steve Holt and I decided we wanted to be paper boys and make money. I would get up at 4 a.m., ride my bike to the local Winn-Dixie, and then deliver 68 papers every day. Go back to sleep about 5 or 5.30 and get up again to go to school. When I was 11, I began mowing lawns to make, make money. That was a little bit more lucrative. When I was 13, I spent every summer working in my grandpa's warehouse. But the problem with this was that money became an obsession for me, a stronghold in my life. So Judas was the money guy. I identify with his struggles to trust Jesus more than money. My parents tithed. When I was younger, I hated to do that. The Holy Spirit used my generous wife to help break this stronghold in my life. Thank God for my wife. Thank God for wives and husbands, right? For all of us, this means engaging with the passion of Christ. How do we break those strongholds? 
remember that Jesus is perfection embodied, which is why the grave could not hold him. He was perfect. He is truth embodied. He is God incarnate. In other religions, truth stands alone and supersedes personality. That's not true with Christianity. In other religions, it is enough to know the words of their holy book. But for Christianity, you need to know the person of Jesus Christ. It's different. It is not just enough to know his words. John's point in writing this book is that Jesus embodies idea. He embodies logos. He is perfect reason embodied. Jesus not only shows love in this passage, but he is love. He embodies love. We see him giving Judas one last chance. What is that? But like Judas and Peter, we think we know better than God, don't we? We are presumptive. What is presumption? Presumption is an idea that is taken to be true and is used as the basis for other ideas or actions, even though it is not certain that it is actually true. We don't really know. Peter's pride brings presumption. He thinks that he knows more than Jesus in this story, doesn't he? And among the disciples, he's the one that wants notoriety. He wants to be in charge. He does have natural leadership qualities, and Jesus will tell him that the church will be built on the rock of Peter, right? So it's coming. But Peter will first need to be remade in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus wanted this for all those disciples at this dinner that night. When I started college, I was pre-law, and there was this movie that came out called The Paper Chase. Some of you older folks may have seen that movie. It's a great movie. It's about Harvard Law School trying to find all the best scholars in the country to come to their law school, you know, and the best students for their law school. And this was similar to Jesus choosing the disciples. You know, he had to scour the land for the people that the Lord wanted to have him as part of his crew of 12. So let's, this is just a short little one-liner, see if we can pop that up. You come in here with a skull full of mush, and you leave thinking like a lawyer. (laughs) Short and sweet. So Jesus had a similar task. The disciples did not have a full understanding of his mission on earth. This was a problem since he was leaving them in charge of the church, which is God's vehicle for the plan of salvation. But remember, this was not a random collection of people. Luke reminds us that these men were the very best Jesus could get but they were still flawed human beings like we are. This is part of the human condition. Remember, Satan hates the incarnation. Let me repeat that. Satan hates the incarnation. Uh-oh. Things keep popping up. What makes Satan so grumpy about the incarnate Christ is that it deflates his place in creation as a fallen angel. See Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. 
And he wants to use our earthly existence to undermine the kingdom of God. And he will try to use earthly pleasures and desires to destroy our place in the kingdom. Think about this last supper. Satan is trying to gain entry into this sweet dinner party where Jesus is so tenderly loving the disciples and teaching them about true loving servanthood. Do you feel the tension in that room? Do you see what is hanging in the balance, life and death? So where do you see yourself in this story of the Last Supper? Remember, this is a good story, and a good story puts a smack dab in the middle of the narrative. So in the early years, Christianity was known as the way. Jesus demonstrates this way to the disciples in this passage. It is love shown by deference and humility. He washes their feet. Remember that at the entry to a house, there were two servants. David Pawson teaches this. One to untie the sandals and the other to wash the feet. The one who washed the feet was the lower servant. When someone asked John the Baptist about Jesus, he said he was not worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus' feet. But remember, that is the second lowest servant. Jesus here demonstrates complete humility by washing the disciples' feet. This must have been shocking to them. It was too much for Simon Peter to handle, wasn't it? But remember that washing or baptism is the entry point for coming into the family of God. Jesus is teaching us here. Let's continue reading. Now the Lord spoke... So when he washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, having washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus gives us an example here. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, May we be transformed as we behold him. It's the beholding becoming. There is a truth in this. As we gaze upon Jesus, we begin to become more like him. Those of you that have children will readily see this truth. Kids constantly watch us, don't they? If our actions deviate slightly from what we say or promise, they will call us out on it, won't they? They will actually jump on the opportunity to let us know but they are modeling themselves after us even in ways beyond their conscious control, modeling after us. As we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, listening to his words and watching his actions, 
the Word of God says we will be transformed into His likeness. That is a sweet promise indeed. As I grow older and become more aware of my dour tendencies, this is really encouraging to me. Lord, help me to keep my eyes on you. Let's read on. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it comes, does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was to whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that we should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. John Wesley, who was instrumental before the Methodist church, said, Thank God for Judas. My dad said, Why would he say that? Sure. The fulfillment of prophecy about Christ involves the betrayal by Judas. But what John Wesley says is that Judas serves as a warning to all of us. Despite Jesus' word of knowledge about the betrayal, Judas still leaves and betrays. Again, this is about lordship. And going back to what Brian said earlier, there are some things that we don't understand. Are we going to trust Jesus as Lord in times that we don't understand, we can't figure out, we don't have understanding of? Do we trust him during those times? Or do we get annoyed with God or angry with God when his perspective differs from ours? God calls us to repent from our arrogance and pride. The Greek word for repent means to take another look. And Jesus gives Judas a last opportunity to take another look here. The expanded meaning of repentance is to turn around and walk a different direction. Jesus also gives us the opportunity to re-examine our lives and actions and worldview. But like the Jews, we are a stiff-necked people. We may openly challenge others or we may stew quietly inside, but by nature we are polarizing and opinionated about all kinds of stuff aren't we? Not just the political opinions Brian talked about last week. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. 
we can either see the message of otherworldly love in this passage, cleansing, humility, serving, or we can adopt the deceit of this world of striving and competition and one-upsmanship. I'm preaching to myself here. The lack of my trust in God's provision has driven me to strive. I think I need to attend Workaholics Anonymous. But God says, Jackson, you need to relax and trust me. My yoke is easy. Let's keep going. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will, not, you will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. For now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Note the contrast between self-serving Judas and Jesus serving his disciples. Jesus is a lover. He models love and embodies love. He is love. In this passage, Jesus loves in three ways. Jesus first loves selflessly. He gives up his position and does not demand. See Philippians chapter 2. He wants us to model our lives after his love, after his life. Jesus loves us sacrificially. He sacrifices his earthly pleasures and will ultimately give up his life. He died for you even as you continue to make poor decisions. And Jesus loves us understandingly. He understands us. Jesus knows the faults of the disciples and still loves them fully. He also knows you and still loves you fully. This story is here in John for a reason, this segue to the passion of Christ, beginning with the public ministry, the Last Supper, and then the passion of Christ. The story is... The story of the Last Supper is right after the story of Lazarus rising from the dead and the story of Mary's sacrifice. But it is also just before John 14 through 17, which is the high holy prayer of Jesus to his disciples about, you know, what does it look like? What does my relationship look like between me and the Father? What does this look like? And he's going to go through this teaching. And so he's tenderizing the hearts of the disciples to prepare them to understand these things, to help them gain a glimpse of the understanding of his relationship with the Father that will soon be expressed. This is a dance. And Jesus is trying to lead the disciples in the dance to see and experience life in ways beyond their understanding and beyond their abilities. 
do you see Jesus coaxing you to do the same thing in this passage? This is a dance, and he's leading in the dance, and he's leading us to things that we don't understand or we don't feel comfortable with, but he wants us to jump in. So just, this is not in the thing, but the Lord just quickened this to me. So I'm thinking about the story of Ezekiel. You know, I think it's Ezekiel 37, where he talks about the water coming from under the altar. And the water goes, flows down to the Dead Sea and brings life to the Dead Sea. So the water comes up ankle deep. Then it comes up knee deep, then waist deep. And then it's flowing so much, you can't wade through the water anymore. You have to jump in. So the Lord calls us to jump in here, just like that. What is holding you back? What is holding me back from trusting Jesus instead of striving to be approved as a doctor, as a dad, as a son, as a brother, as a husband? Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. As a believer, why do I forget that? Why does Peter forget that in the next passage as he strives to show Jesus his toughness? Let's continue reading. Jesus, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow. Follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. But Jesus is different. He hangs with Peter for the long haul, doesn't he? He has another word of knowledge and sees the denial coming but he also sees the end from the beginning. He sees the end of Peter from the beginning. He sees the end of us from the beginning. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. After the resurrection, Jesus asked Peter to Feed my sheep three times. It's, it's a consternation to Peter. Of course, I'm going to feed your sheep. But it refines the humility in Peter. And we need to be refined like that too. And Peter becomes the head of the church after Jesus leaves along with other elders and apostles. And Peter ushers in the acceptance of non-Jews into the family of God by his prophetic dream and encounter with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Peter stands by this at the Council of Jerusalem after Paul's admonition and ultimately gives his life for the kingdom. All of us have warts like Peter. But Jesus hangs with us too. Why does he do this? Because he wants us to be lovers like him. He wants us to be lovers. Jesus wants us to be humble, serving, cleansing healers like he is. He gives us that opportunity. It is a free gift from him. I'm a doctor, but the Lord wants all of us 
to be healers. The church needs to be more like a hospital and not a morgue. We are in the business of bringing people back to life through the love of Jesus Christ. And the band can come up. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, replace our opinions with your opinions. Lord, replace our desires with your desires. Lord, replace my thoughts about myself and others with your thoughts about myself and others. Lord, we want to be, a hum- to be humble servants who bring healing to those around us. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.